Thanks so much, Felix. Sorry, I need to bring a stand for my water because me bending down looks like a giraffe. So it's like watching a David Attenborough documentary. Great. So let me just bring my notes up. So yes, thank you for coming this evening. It's great to be with you and it's a privilege to be speaking with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Toby and I'm a regular member of HTC and The Six. And as Tom has already shared, we are looking at chapter eight of Acts. And um, for those of you who are new here or just visiting maybe um, and aren't too familiar with the book of Acts, it shows the birth of the early church and how it started to spread all across the world. But before we get into our passage tonight, I just want to do a quick pit stop of where we've been, and this will kind of help set the scene for us tonight. So if my slides are working, yes. So in the chapter, Acts chapter 1, we have the ascension. Jesus gives his disciples this final command before ascending into heaven. They're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, we see the events of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, and Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, preaches and thousands come to faith. In chapters 3 to 6, the church continues to grow through the preaching of the word, and it's accompanied by signs, wonders, and healings. But also, we start to see an increase in persecution. And this persecution culminates in chapter 7, where the disciple Stephen is murdered and it causes the church to scatter. So that kind of brings us to chapter 8, where we are now. And uh, so we'll uh, get into the passage, but I do encourage you to have either your phone or a physical Bible um, at hand, because we are going to be in the text. So I want to start with us tonight with warnings. Now... We may uh, not be aware, but warnings are a part of our everyday lives. Uh, Many of us will have seen, obviously, the hot weather warnings we've been talking about as the temperatures continue to soar. But we also have other things. You know, our phones warn us when it's time to get up. They tell us when they're about to run out of battery. Our cars light up when there's an engine problem or we're running on fumes. And while weather warnings can be dangerous, like they are potentially this week, I do find Britain's weather warnings sometimes fairly comical because we seem to have a weather warning for everything. You know, too much or too little rain, uh, snow, which only really, if we're honest, needs to fall in millimetres to bring the country to a complete standstill, and the most dangerous of all, leaves. You know, we've all heard about leaves on the track, cancelling trains, it's a, it's a nightmare. But regardless of how we feel about the warnings we have in our lives, they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to get us to change our direction. Because if we didn't pay attention to the warnings, our phones would die, our cars wouldn't move, and you know, the list goes on. However, warnings also show us what we need to do in response. You know, when the phone warning goes off, we know we need to plug it in to charge it. We know when the car light, light um, lights up, we need to go to the petrol station to fill up. So by way of warning, this is where we're going to find ourselves tonight. And if there's anything from tonight that kind of sits uncomfortably with you, can I ask you to hold that and remember that warnings both point to the problem, but they also give us uh, hope and show us a way out. So... We're going to start uh, in the beginning of chapter 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in, this, in that city. We find ourselves in a pivotal part of Acts here. The disciples have seen an explosion of God in Jerusalem with people coming to faith and people being healed. But now they find themselves persecuted and scattered. But what we see here is not things spiraling out of control, but a fulfillment of God's promises. We see in verse four, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, for those who might not be aware, Philip is what's called a deacon, which simply means a servant or helper. Um, and along with Stephen, who we've heard about, he was chosen to help serve the widows who were being overlooked back in chapter six. And it's here at the start of chapter eight, we see Jesus's words being fulfilled, where he told the disciples back, way back in chapter one, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And like in Jerusalem, men and women are baptized, uh, healings, there are unclean spirits being cast out, and it says joy spreads throughout the city. The kingdom of God continues to break through. We continue in verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So it's quite a big chunk of text there. So what is happening there? We encounter this character called Simon, now, Simon was somewhat of, I guess, what you'd call a local celebrity in Samaria. Try and think of a first century Dynamo or David Blaine if you've watched any of the, the magic programs. We're told he amazed the people with his magic and he sees himself as someone great and he even gives himself the name, the great one, the power of God. He's a, he's a real humble guy and he loved it. He was basking in his reputation and he fed off the respect and the admiration he got from the crowd that followed him. And just like Philip, the crowd paid attention to him. But unlike Philip, we see in verse 12, Simon watches in awe as he sees the real, genuine power of God flowing through Philip as he preaches about the kingdom of God. And this amazes Simon so much that he believes and is baptized and he gets caught up in all the signs and miracles we see uh, being performed. And God's power continues to grow when uh, the apostles Peter and John are sent by to lay hands on the people so they can receive the Holy Spirit. And all of this, while this, all of this is going on, more and more crowds are being drawn in. Everyone is talking about Philip and Peter and John. Everyone is being mesmerized. We continue um, from verse 18. 
When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon at this point, you know, his name, the great one, the power of God, he appears to have become a distant memory in the people's minds. He's now a bit of a has-been. And when he sees all that's going on, he can feel himself slipping away into obscurity. And in a last-ditch attempt, he approaches Peter and offers to buy this power so that he can, too can lay his hands on people so they can receive the Holy Spirit. He's clinging on to any shred of power he can so that he can still be acknowledged and admired by the people. And it's here that the atmosphere changes, but not in the way that Simon was hoping. What can only be described as a chewing out of biblical proportions, Peter tears into Simon. And in that moment, Simon knew he had seriously miscalculated things. Is that going to work? Thanks, Mike. Cheers. From verse 20, it says, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and praise the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And in response to verse 24, um, Simon then answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So what started off as a joyful celebration has now taken a sharp turn and we're left on a bit of a cliffhanger because we don't know what happens to Simon. We don't know if he's taken Peter's uh, words and repented and truly believed. The Bible doesn't tell us this. But I think what we can take from this encounter is that Simon's standing before God is not what the author Luke's primary focus is. This account in Acts is there because God doesn't want us to ignore the same warning that Peter gave Simon, and that is God's power is not a means for us to pursue our own greatness and wealth, but to point those around us to him. So for the rest of the talk, we're going to be taking this idea and, uh, and what that means for us today under the following uh, headings of wounded hearts, healed hearts, and hearts on fire. So Peter identifies what the issue is with Simon. In verse 21, if you look, he says, your heart is not right before God. Or to put it another way, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. You see, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the organ that pumps blood around the body. Instead, it's referring to our, our entire nature, our mind, our soul, our spirit. It's everything about us. Many of us will be familiar with the phrase, follow your heart. 
And what it's saying is that when it comes down to you know, deciding who we are as individuals, what decisions we make in life, whether it be what school or university we go to, what job we have, where we live, who we marry, our hearts should ultimately be the authority in what decides that. And we need to trust that. However, Scripture gives us a very different way as to how we're to view our hearts. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now those are pretty harsh uh, words. And if Jeremiah shows the condition of our hearts, Romans chapter 3 shows us the results of our condition. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, this is in stark contrast to what the world around us says. Because the world says that fundamentally, you know, we're good. We've got good intentions. You know, sure, we all, you know, we all make mistakes. But all we need to do is to look within and try harder and do better. But as Romans has just shown us, the truth is no one's good because we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's standard. And we see this playing out in our passage. Simon's view of faith and his motivation for wanting spiritual gifts was distorted by his heart. It was self-serving. And when we fast forward today, we can see similar things happening. We see scandals in the global church of high-profile leaders who have abused their office for personal gain. Businesses choose profit at the expense of people and the environment. And even on an individual level, we can sacrifice relationships in order to get ahead, whether it's at work to get that promotion or at school where you choose to ignore that, you know, that uncool person so you can be in the popular crowd. When I think about myself... Um, a particular story comes to mind. Some of you might not be aware that I used to actually work at HTC and I started off as a ministry assistant similar to our DY students, Sam and Josh. And after a couple of years, I took on a similar role to Thomas, um, kind of overseeing the morning and the evening music. And I felt called cool to serve in that role and I was privileged to serve in that capacity. But if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, on some level, part of me wanted, like Simon, to be recognised and enjoy the status and power that came along with it, which now when I look back is completely ludicrous. But what it showed me is that in its natural state, my heart will want to look inward and glorify me and left unchecked, a spiritual cancer of self-glory can develop, which can be fatal. And verse 23 shows us the result of this self-glory. Peter says, you know, instead of finding fulfillment and joy, we are left, as he says, with bitterness and we are being left being captive to sin because our hearts will never be satisfied until we find our heart's true home. James chapter 3 verse 16 says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, I want to be clear here that it's not wrong to be ambitious in life. The key, as James says, is selfish ambition. Because ambition is essential in the context of our mission of building God's kingdom. Jesus commands us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, and we should be ambitious for Jesus. 
And that means we need to be in every sphere of life, at work, at school. The danger is that we need to guard our hearts so that we don't end up seeking our own glory in the process. As I said, it's a matter of the heart. Where is our heart in the decisions that we make? Is it to pursue our own greatness and agenda like Simon, or is it to point others to God and his greatness? Now, I've realized that first point may have left you feeling a little deflated, quite some uh, heavy points in there. And you also might be thinking, Toby, please, whatever you do, don't go into motivational speaking. Um, But don't worry, I promise it gets better. It gets so much better. So if our hearts are the problem, what is the solution? And as I said at the beginning, warnings always give us a way out. And with God, there is always hope. There is always light. And that takes me on to my second point of healed hearts. You see, in the passage, Peter doesn't just tell Simon, you're awful, your heart's not right, and then walks off and just leaves him to work it out for himself. If we look at verse 22, Peter gives Simon the answer. He needs to repent. He's calling on Simon to turn from how he's viewed God's power as something that he can buy, exploit, and control for his own gain. And instead, he needs to submit to the power, to the real power of God, and realize where it comes from and what its purpose is. And the message is the same for us. We too are called to do the same, to turn away from the things that we have done that have been self-serving, that have neglected or hurt those around us in pursuit of ourselves and our own platform. So the solution is repentance, but God, in his infinite grace, doesn't stop there. Not only does he give us forgiveness, but we receive more than we can ask or imagine. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, says this, And I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Now, in its wider context, the prophet Ezekiel here is telling the nation of Israel that in spite of the ways that they have rejected God and lived how they wanted to, God would make them clean. And for us, it's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we are made clean. We're given a spiritual heart transplant. Jesus takes our sick hearts and replaces it with one that is tender and responsive to the Holy Spirit, which now lives inside of you. You see, Simon, he missed the point. While the pursuit of God's gifts in their right context are amazing, he failed to realize that above everything else, his heart needed healing. And that too is the greatest gift that we can receive. And this is why one of the names Jesus is known as is the great physician. Luke chapter 5, verses 31 32 says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus offers us a new heart. He offers us his heart. A heart that is tender, a heart that is responsive and compassionate to the needs of those around us. Not just so that we can care for others better and be better people, but to ultimately point those people to the one their hearts have been longing for the entire time. 
And if you're here tonight exploring faith, the good news is that God is ready to give you a new heart, to free you from bitterness and to break the sins that are holding you captive. The question is, will we turn to him? So if Jesus gives us a new heart with new thoughts and desires, how do we then become great for him instead of ourselves? How do we go from self-serving to pointing those around us to him? And that leads me to my final point of hearts on fire. Luke chapter 9 verse 48 says, whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Now Jesus is saying this in response to the disciples who are arguing over who is greatest. Again, they're looking inwards. I always find it comforting when I see even the disciples, people who spent face time with Jesus getting it wrong. It gives hope for me and it gives hope for the rest of us. Just like Peter didn't leave Simon to work out his own salvation, we too are not left to our own devices to try and work things out. And we're given two things to help us in our walk. Firstly, we've been given the perfect example in Jesus as a template as to how we are to use what God has given us. You see, the one person who, uh, to exist who could rightly point to himself, the King of heaven, God in flesh, chose to serve those around him. Whether that was healing illnesses, casting out evil spirits, feeding thousands, and ultimately dying on a cross for our sins so that our hearts could be healed and we could be in relationship with the Father. Secondly, we have the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter one, I mentioned Jesus instructed the disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I can't help but feel that the disciples would have felt daunted at the task ahead, especially as Jesus ascended to heaven straight after saying it. But what's important to note is what Jesus says right before this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, the power comes before the plan. The power comes before the plan. I believe it's important and intentional that Jesus has phrased it this way because we aren't just meant to go out and do things in our own strength. We are meant to, we need to, be empowered by the Holy Spirit because it's only through him that we can be effective and build God's kingdom. You know, this series we're in is called A Church on Fire. And for us to be that, we need to be radiating that power that comes from submitting to the real power of God, not our own power like Simon. Our power next to God is like the equivalent of holding a candle next to the sun. When we submit to this power and become more tender and responsive to God, we decrease so God can increase. It's not about thinking less of ourselves, it's about thinking of ourselves less. Because when we do this, we let go of all the things that put focus on ourselves and we find freedom. And in place, we're filled with greater joy and love for God where we can be more impactful to grow his kingdom and we become a church on fire. So as I bring it into land, I just want to leave a few thoughts with you. Some of you might be here tonight feeling a bit like Simon. You might be feeling bitter about a person, a situation, or maybe you're struggling to break away from a specific sin. 
Know that Jesus has made a way for you. Because when we come to him in repentance, he promises not only to give us a new heart of flesh for our heart of stone, he promises a spirit which transforms us from within and gives us new desires, new life, and new joy that is eternal. For others, we may be weighing up decisions that could be great for us, but it comes at a cost for someone else. The challenge God gives us is will we sacrifice ourselves to lift up and point those around us to God? Again, the good news here is that God promises you his Holy Spirit to give you strength and to help follow the call that he has put on your life. And finally, some of us might be here in a place where you're battling the world around you. You keep being told you need to make a name for yourself. Jesus instead is calling you into rest and saying that you don't have to strive to make a name for yourself because you already have the greatest name possible. You are a son, you are a daughter of the living God. And instead, let us make much of him to those we are around and become a church on fire. Amen.